just have to stand there awkwardly. And then I remember, well, I should be praying. <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, good morning. Kirsten, I missed you, see? Uh, you ready to study your Bibles this morning? Yeah. Kirsten, we're right here, we're right here. Everybody else is kind of eavesdropping. Uh, children, if there's any left, you may be dismissed onto your classrooms. Everybody else, would you join me right where we left off last week in the book, The Letter of Jude? And as you get there, I want to sort of frame up our time. Last week we began a two-week mini-series studying the short letter of Jude called uh, Family Matters with borrowed creativity from the 90s sitcom. But it also makes sense, right? Jude's letter is a very powerful and punchy letter about what it means to be in the family of God. It's not addressed to a specific church like we see Paul do in his letters, but it is addressed to a very specific kind of person, a follower of Jesus. And more specifically than that, it's addressed to Hebrew Christians. So this letter uh, would be passed around from church to church, believer to believer, family member to family Remember, my friend Pastor Mello up in Apopka says this wonderful thing. He says, uh, I, I probably borrowed it from somewhere too, but he says, uh, the church isn't like a family. It is a family. And we talked about last week that no matter your perspective on family, whether you grew up with a beautiful, loving one or a complicated, trauma-filled one, there is no perfect family. And so it is with the family of God. All of us here operate in ways reminiscent to what God has saved us from. All of us act like that which we've been called out of sometimes. And that's where Jude, the author of this letter, who is also the kid brother of Jesus, tells us to contend for the faith, to fight against the stealthy adversary of unbelief, to contend for the good of ourselves, but to contend against our propensity to accept and adhere to thoughts, ideas, frameworks, and even people who, when uncovered on their disguises, really seek the declension of our faith in Jesus. It is to say that in all of life's difficulties and complexities, in the face of famines and philosophies, in the midst of systems and sufferings, lies the great potential, the great danger that you might fall away. And that's why Jude writes. He writes to say that there's some things in this life that'll take your breath away, and there's some things in life that seek to take your faith away. And so Jude calls us to contend, to defend the faith, to preserve in our belief by knowing what God does. By knowing what God does in the family, we actually know how to contend and what to do to persevere in the faith. Last week, our time together was tagged your place in the family as the first seven verses of Jude's letter gave us sort of a cyclical framework to contend against apostasy and sin. Remember that you belong to God. Remember that 
you enjoy abundant blessing in him. Remember to beware of your sinfulness and remember to bow down in submission to his lordship. But in the remaining verses of this letter, Jude will continue the thoughts he shared in the first part, but now focuses on God's role in the family. And that's how I'll title our time together this morning, God's role in the family. Jude lays out four roles that God operates in. And here are the first, the the four points we'll see in this text. One, that God's a protector, that he's a teacher, that he's a rescuer, and that he's a keeper. Protector, teacher, rescuer, keeper. If you are able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? And then I want to invite you to join me in prayer as I pray for you and you pray for me as together we hear what thus saith the Lord. Jude, starting in verse eight. And he says, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's errors and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds without shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit, but you, Beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, once again, you have called all your children to this place. You wish to discuss some family business. You've called us here for us to discover who we are in light of your love, what we are to do in light of your grace, what we are to guard against in light of our sin. Father, speak to us all this morning. And may your son be seen as beautiful in this exposition. Would you bless me as the preacher with clarity of speech and thought? And would you gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors in Christ Jesus' name? Amen. You may be seated. I believe it was 18 years ago yesterday, the 2005 film Coach Carter came out. Coach Carter is a true story about Coach Ken Carter, who's played by the wonderful Samuel L. Jackson, whose mouth is filled with naughty words. But I really do enjoy it. I'm not going to lie. Confession, good for the soul, bad for the reputation. But Coach Ken Carter comes to coach the basketball team at his former high school, of which he also played at. And the high school is, quite honestly, in the hood of Richmond, California. And the players on this team are a rowdy bunch, disjointed, disrespectful, disregarding. It is Coach Carter's job to not only turn these boys to winners, but to turn these boys into men and create a family among the team. Some of you might have played basketball before in your youth. You know that this is a a, a sport best played as a team. Right. All your coaches must have warned you against the idea of hero ball to do it all on yourself. In the playground, you get teased for being a ball hog. Right. And that's Coach Carter's job. This game is best taught through the lens of family dynamics, especially particularly for black and brown young men who don't have father figures in their home. Team sports sort of becomes a place, a tremendous tool for developing one's sense of belonging. And that's exactly what happens in this film, particularly with one player named Timo Cruz. If you've seen the movie, you might remember Timo. Uh, Every time the team grows more closely knit, more familial in its nature, Timo always finds his way out. One night, Richmond finally gets their first win, and Timo asks Coach if he could get back on the team. Coach Carter gives him an impossible task, a a training regimen that he has to complete. It was meant for him to fail. But Timo goes above and beyond all expectations and pushes himself to the limit only to miss it by that much. What ends up happening is, is the team rallies behind Timo. His brothers bring him back into the family. But Timo's problem is not that he was lazy. It wasn't even that he wasn't good. He's actually one of the better players on the team. Timo's problem was that he was always tempted to believe that what coach had taught him, what coach instilled in him, 
was lesser than the life he had when he was outside the family. See, Timo was in a gang. He was a drug dealer for his cousin. He was a playboy, a party goer. But Coach Carter had pulled him away from that life to bring him into something more fulfilling, something more true and deep. But the, but the temptation to go back to the pit was always there, and oftentimes he would give in. I don't want to spoil the movie too much for you, but there is a point in this movie where Timo leaves the team to go back to his life, and tragedy strikes. One evening, Coach Carter gets a ring at the doorbell. Who could be ringing his bell at this ungodly hour of the evening? Who is knocking on his door? And Coach Carter opens the door to see a weeping Timo Cruz, shirt clothes, blood-stained. His cousin had just been gunned down in front of him. The first words out of Timo's mouth are, I want to come back. What do I have to do? I'll do anything, just let me come back. A coach could have responded with, I told you so. He could have responded with, calm down, let's go to the police, let's figure this out. You're in shock. Coach could have responded with, I'll help you today, but we've already moved on without you. You can't come back on the team. That's not what coach says. He embraces him. And he says, come inside, son. You're okay. You're back with us now. This exchange, church, is what's at the core of Jude's letter. If you are family with God, the world may whisper to you where it thinks you belong. It may entice you with all of its alluring vices, but in the end, it reeks of death. Uh, you can experience the worst of life's tragedies, wondering where you go next, and there you will find the doorstep of God. And when you ring that bell, what you'll find is that he answers with an embrace. And you'll find belonging, protection, and love. That even when you make choices that make you feel like you've forsaken your place, what you find is that God never lets you go. And he calls you son. And he calls you daughter. And he says, come inside now. You're back with us. I want to preach to you, but I got to walk this text first. Verse 18, verse 8 through 16 of Jude's letter are difficult verses to exegete. As we were reading, you were probably like, what is homeboy talking about? There are just things in here that time will not permit us to engage with. But if you want, uh, if you would like to go through it, I'll recommend two resources for you. First, the Tony Evans Training Center, and then second, a study by Jackie Hill Perry. And I will say this, uh, these verses in Jude, through a series of points and illustrations written heavily for the Jewish context, continues what he started in verse 5. He provides us warnings about who and what to beware of. I want to break these verses, 8 through 16, in two parts. 8 through 10 of Jude, he calls us to be on guard, to defend the faith against ourselves, but more specifically, those who practice or tempt us with the sins of rebellion, arrogance, and ignorance. In these specific categories, we find the danger of de-emphasizing our ownership by God. 
These three characteristics seek to undermine, devalue the truth that God has purchased us out of the slave market of sin by the precious blood of Jesus. They seek to rob our affections of a core emotion that can only be found in God. I want to make my case. Eight through ten are uh, carry a very specific warning against a very popular framework of today. The authority of you is you. Do what thou will. Do what you want. Do what makes you feel good. Do what pleases you. And on and on it goes with you at the center of every thought, reason, and word. It is a rejection of God's authority in exchange for your own. It's not so much a theological rejection as much as it is a moral and personal avoidance to do anything that doesn't appeal or feel right to you. You decide what's good. You decide what is true. You decide how to live. And God will not, because the only person who knows what makes you happy is you. Our family, this framework is crafty. Jude says stealthy, right? And it's made its way into things, good things, like modern therapy and psychology, to convince you that, the, that you are the authority, to convince you that you are at the center of all things, that your subjective idea of happiness, all things in your life should flow from. Now listen for me, listen, I am a big, big advocate of therapy and counseling and mental health. Like, I, I love, this is a reminder that I need to schedule my appointment today, okay? Yeah, Johnny waving at me because they've been keeping me accountable and I've been slacking off. Confession, good for the soul, bad for the reputation. I'm all for the discovery of oneself. But this idea of ourselves becoming the center of which all things in our lives flow. This is, this is a termite seeking to burrow and decay the foundation, the trunk of the family tree of God. This faux attempt at creating personal happiness via personal autonomy does not give you in the end what you believe it will. If this will not produce the gladness in you, you think it does. Jude argues that even the archangel Michael in all his divine might, power, and ability does not even set for himself policy and makes up the rules as he wishes. No arrogance, rebellion, or pride runs through his angelic veins if he does not function. With himself at the center, he who is mighty enough to stand in the presence of Satan and argue with him, how dare we think that this is the supreme goal of our lives? To be at the center. The point is this. In our arrogance, in our ignorance, we fuel the seed of rebellion. 
Proverbs 29 says it well. When people do not accept divine guidance, they run wild. But whoever obeys the law of the Lord is joyful. True happiness, true joy is everlasting and can only be found in God. That was the setup for the first point. God is a protector. In verses 11 through 16, Jude explains how God will deal with those who partake in the attempt to deceive God's children and try and call them out of being a part of the family of God. Jude says God will condemn the ungodly because of their decisions, deceptions, and their deeds. Jude wants to be clear that against the wicked, the evildoer, the hater of him and his children, he will not treat them with a soft or gentle hand. He is no father who dabbles in the let them win philosophy of parenting. He will punish them justly. In other words, family, God is trustworthy. Trust him to deal with the dangerous and destructive forces that seek to disconnect you from his embrace. But if we're honest, that's all good, true, and beautiful, and good words, and kind of motivating, and maybe even puts a pep in your step. The wrestle for remaining in him is true. We all feel the teeter-totter of life. The wrestle for our affections, the battle for our regularly communing with the lover of our soul. But there will be a day, Jude says, when that wrestle is all gone. Where you won't be an unfaithful bride to your God any longer. When distractions will dissipate, when whispers will wither, when sin will suffer and our enemies eliminated, God will protect all of those who are covered by the blood of his son. He's done it in the past. He'll do it today and you can trust him to do it tomorrow. Munich, Germany is where the Dachau concentration camp sits as a museum that houses some relics as well as some very grim and horrifying photos depicted of the actual conditions of that camp during the Second World War. As visitors leave, they pass by a sign right next to the exit door that reads, those who do not learn from history are condemned to repeat its mistakes. I think Jude would agree. As he has spent a great deal of this letter recalling significant parts of Jewish history to make his points. And what Jude does in the next section of verses is gives us another role that God plays in the family, a teacher. He says, remember, beloved, the words of the apostles. In other words, God says through Jude, remember my child who I love so much that I have already prepared you with the teachings of the apostles. In history, I have already given to you that which you need for today. Jude calls us to the work of remembering how God has taught us before. By the words of the apostles, 
And he echoes the words of them, specifically Paul, Peter, and John in 17 through 19. In those verses, we find a portrait, a photo of the horrifying characteristics of the dangerous ones that are among us. He says, first, they're scoffers. Another translation might say, men who pour scorn on religion. They are mockers, people who seek to devalue the faith with parody. They laugh at, sneer at, and make light of God's holiness and moral perfection. Peter says that they laugh at the reality of Jesus' return. He says next they're sensual, walking in ungodly lust. They are controlled by it, pursuing anything that pleases their carnal appetites. They, 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 what they seek is purely carnal and not at all spiritual. The lust is their Lord, passion their pastor, misconduct their masters. There, there's no reverence for purity at all. He says next, they're schismatic. They stir up divisions, arguments. John in his letter tells us of a man named Diotrephes who was in the church, among the church, but fostering strife and disunity. There are people who lack respect for their spiritual leaders, making sport of moral convictions, lording over their theological distinctives. They have the power to demolish in a day what took years to build. Lastly, something more telling and more tragic than any of the rest, they're spiritless, lost, unregenerate, not having the Holy Spirit. Paul says of these, they claim Christ but do not know him and prove it by how they live. This is the picture of danger. Characteristics to identify the false as similar to the photos that hang in Dachau showing us what danger looks like so we may never give a listening ear or curious thought their way. Jude says, remember what God has already taught you. But like you would see in a hazard sign in an office building or uh, uh, any multi-story building, it shows you the picture of fire, right? A description for the danger, but it also prescribes to you the action you take. A step-by-step -step guide on how to avoid it and find safety quickly. No, you've never seen these signs before. Right after showing you the picture of danger, God, through the Holy Spirit-empowered penmanship of Jude, teaches us action. Now that Jude has called us to the past, we now stand firmly in the present with instruction. Verse 20 brings a powerful pivot. But you... Beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, that word beloved comes. Four times this word is used, each changing the tone and focus of the letter. But as you see as we go on, th this, this is it. This is the beginning of Jude expressing the fullness of his heart on why he's writing this letter. It is to begin to uncover the why. Jude believes truly 
that God's beloved lived and currently live in a day where we need real comfort in the love of God. Here we all are, men and women in the height, in the heat of battle, defending, contending for the faith we hold, fighting off by the power of God, the danger of unbelief that tries to penetrate and reach us at every angle, spectrum, and direction, need to know that they are loved by God and wants us to keep ourselves in that love by doing three things. He says at the top, beloved, build yourselves in your holy faith. The same faith he said in verse three that was delivered to us once and for all. The foundation of which to build, Paul affirms this in Ephesians when he says, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, that's the word, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Christ and his gospel found in the holy pages of the books in your lap or on the app on your phone are the rock in which we stand, our firm foundation, our cornerstone. Jude must have known that song that says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. It is on this foundation, from this rock, that we grow and mature, not in the philosophy of self, not in the full supremacy of our humanity, but in the true supremacy of Christ. It is from this foundation that we build ourselves up and we can only do that through the word, meditating on it, thinking on it, learning from it, putting it into practice, following the way. Because then and only then will it permeate our minds and fill our hearts so that we might be strengthened to suffer well. So that we might grow in grace. So that we might mature in mercy. So that we might be made firm in the fullness of God. Without the text, we have none of this. Without the scriptures, we have no shot. And it is in God's word that we are being built up. You don't like reading your Bible. That's fine. God teaches us more through Jude's hand. Prayer in the Holy Spirit. The foundation is set in the gospel. The walls are put up by the word. Now we must furnish it with prayer. We got to get some holy decor up in here. But as a contrast, we can see Jude says the false teachers are spiritless. And Jude tells us to pray in the spirit. Paul, again, in Ephesians 6 says, pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Basically, Paul says, be in constant prayer. Pray at all times in the spirit. Make every praise and make every request to God. You can, holding that the Lord's will be done and not ours. This act, praying constantly, giving every request to him, giving every praise to him. This act keeps us close to God. It keeps us aligned with his heart. When you believe the gospel and grow in his word, you can pray for anything and everything, knowing that God can provide according to the riches of his grace and mercy. 
that we can cast all our cares and troubles on him, that we can make every request known to him, pray for it all, and for it all, pray at all times. Then finally, our third lesson. Wait. Wait for the Savior. This word wait really means to watch, to look expectantly and with certainty. The foundation is set. The walls have been built up. The dinner table is here. And now we wait for Jesus to come back. And here's the thing. This waiting that God is instructing us to do, it isn't wonder. It isn't curiosity. It's confidence. Like when someone tells you they're going to be there at 3 and at 2.59, you're waiting. It's an expectant confidence that we know the Lord is coming back to meet with us. It's to know that one day there will be, as it says in Thessalonians, a trumpet sound and an angel's voice. Eternal life awaits us. We've made it to the end. The sky has cracked open. The heavens are coming down. The new city is descending. And there in the distance, you see a man in his white linen outfit, a gold sash, hair like wool, legs tatted up for some reason. (laughs) It's a very specific place to put a tattoo. I'm just saying, but Jesus did it. And he's descending down. And all of a sudden, that sound that you heard was shouting, you begin to hear the words clearly. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, who takes away the sins of the world. Church, we know this is going to happen. It's not wishful thinking. It's a hope with confidence. God through Jude teaches us here that the valleys of life may be low, that the sufferings of this world are ever so present, that deceivers and destroyers abound and they look like friends, that your heart may be aching, that your mind might be anxious, but wait on the Lord. Stand firm in the gospel. Build yourself up in his word. Get stronger with prayer and wait till he comes to make all things new. I'll be excited by myself. The next set of verses are brief but incredibly weighty. And carries with it a consequential tone. In our preserving of our faith, in our grounding, guarding of our belief, we display another role that God plays in the family. By living these verses out, we declare, we show, we testify something of great significance to those outside the faith. That God is a rescuer. That God is not only looking inward to the children of his house, but facing outward, calling all those who will be his children to come home. In this, we proclaim not just the truth of our conversion, but make known the reality of someone else's. Jude tells us in 22, have mercy on those who doubt. 
save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This means that as God is facing out calling upon hearts, we go and scatter, being instruments of mercy to them. Mercy here in the Greek is compassion. It means that we become people who deal gently with those who are doubtful of their objective reality. Jude began praying mercy be multiplied on us. Then he says later that at his fullness, mercy will receive. And now he's saying, calling us to express, to extend that same mercy to those who are doubting and struggling with the truth of the gospel. To, to someone who has been confused by the false teacher. Someone whose heart has now become cloudy because of the outside influences and secular perspectives. And then he says to save others by snatching them. This, this notes quickness, decisive action. To not stand back and watch and see what might happen, but to intervene. That nobody is far too gone. That there is still time left to react, to interact, to invest and intercede. To show mercy with fear, hating the garment stained by flesh. All that this means is to show mercy without becoming them. To still hate the very thing that has entrapped them. To be compassionate towards the sinner, but not the sin. To embrace the person, receive the person, acknowledge the person, but have nothing to do with their sin. Oh, we're seeing this across churches in America at what feels like a rapid pace. These churches are falling away to be what's called affirming churches. Churches that affirm lifestyle contrary to what God has laid out. And this is exactly what Jude instructs and warns us against. God rescues the person. God rescues the heart. He does not rescue the sin. Don't you see how that fits? Secularism today convinces the person that their identity is the sin in which they are enslaved to. So in order to love them, you must love, must embrace their sin. And Jew says, nah, uh-uh. But also don't mark them off as lost causes either. Oh, that's a word for us. We don't like that one. We like to stay within our white picket fence, huh? And look on the outside and read the news articles and go, oh, the world is going to hell. And Jude says, oh, that is not the disposition of the Christian. There is still time for them to be snatched from the fire. Because God is a rescuer. And there is no sin too great. No mind too marred. No heart too hateful that God cannot change. Let this serve you as a reminder that Jesus is thoroughly a soul winner. That he put on flesh 
and came into this world on a mission to save the least, the last, and the lost. Our God saves. That's his business. And like a parent that trains their child to take on the family legacy, that's our business now too. And you can testify, can't you? Just how bad you were. Just how wretched you was. Just how hurt and how broken you became before he snatched you out of the fire. You were dead in your sins, buried in the rubble of your transgressions. But God being rich in mercy, I don't need to say the rest. And this family flows right into our last role. Jude's final point of this letter is a declaration of God's role in the family. This, this, this is the main reason right here. Why Jude wrote. Christian, you could forget everything we studied last week. You could forget everything I said up to this point. But do not forget. Don't you ever forget that God is a keeper. In verses 24 through 25, Jude writes one of the most beautiful doxologies and benedictions ever written to help us. Now to him. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Let me see if I can help you understand what this means. One of the things that sucks about parenting is that your kids grow up. I know it's good for them to grow up, to be independent, to think for themselves, to get hurt, to get crushed, to be their own. Don't hear me say anything I'm not saying. But for me, the toddler age was the best. One of my favorite things, one of my favorite moments about having toddlers, and I really do miss this moment, was whenever we would go somewhere and we'd park, you'd have to cross the parking lot and then cross the street to get to the other side. It was the feeling of these little hands holding on to yours. My kids are big now. And sometimes when we go to Target or Publix or some other place, I have to fight the urge to reach. Because my oldest, he too cool for school now. He walked with his hands in his pockets like this. Get me upset. Who do you think you are, bro? You ain't running nothing. He walk around with his hand in his pocket like this, walking all by himself. I hold my, I reach, I ask him to hold my hand. And he'll, he'll legit look at me like I'm crazy. My middle one and my youngest one, you know, they're, they're still kind of small, but they'll do it to like appease me. But there's like this internal clock in them that's like, it's enough. But during, during that toddler phase, man, 
They, they had to fight the desire to let go. Because dad told them about the dangers of being by yourself. About people who look like you, talk like you, but might not be for you. About the unevenness of the ground. About the curb you have to step over. About the cars coming. So they would grab and hold tight. Sometimes wanting to let go and try and be on their own, but my grip was always tighter. And they would walk. You know how uncoordinated they are at that age. So trip over themselves. They would never fall. I'd hold them up. And we would walk. And they would look around for danger and also see danger disguised as fun. And we would make it to the other side. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Other versions might say falling. Jude ain't talking about sin. He's not saying to him who is able to keep you from sinning. No, 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 don't get it twisted. He'll do that when he comes back and puts sin away for good. But that's not what Jude is saying. Stumbling or falling meant unbelief. It means that in this life, you face the very real threat of falling out of the family of God of stumbling your way out of salvation, tripping yourself back into the deadness of sin. But Jude is saying, present as the danger may be, the God who purchased you, the God who called you, the God who loves you and keeps you, keeps you from falling out of the family, keeps you from stumbling into unbelief, saves you from tripping into the fiery pit of hell. Oh, I know for a fact that some of you here knows what it's like to be awake at all hours of the evening, pressured by the desire and temptation to send your way back into a life that was not meant for you. I know that some of you remember the bliss of sin's kiss, the addiction to sin's affections, but then you remember that it never truly satisfied you for more than a moment. Then you remember that he never delivers on his promises. Then you remember that blood-stained cross on Golgotha's hill. You remember those nail-scarred hands and that pierced side that delivered you from the depths of your sin and brought you into life and light eternally, connected to the Father and with his saints. Jude says, church, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to him who holds your hands so you don't trip over yourself, to him who keeps you from danger and distraction as you cross through this life, to him who keeps you safe amidst the offers of this world till you get to the other side, to him who will present you blameless, perfect, and spotless before his presence of his glory to him who brings you great joy to the only God our only Savior in Jesus Christ our Lord to him be glory to him be majesty to him be dominion to him be authority he's a keeper church Oh, our God is a keeper. 
all the way to the end. And he was before all time. And he is right now. And he will be forever and ever. Amen. Stand with me and worship.